everyone, this is Chad. I'm the founder and CEO of Mission.org and the host of Mission Daily, the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Mission Daily was recently selected as best of 2018 by Apple for a reason. In every single episode, you're going to learn actionable strategies that you can apply to your life to become healthier, wealthier, and wiser. Welcome to the Mission Daily. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission. And I'm joined by a special guest. David, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks, Ian. Really happy to be here. All right. We have a great episode coming for everyone, all of our award-winning listeners. We are going to be talking about future cities. We're going to be talking about how David looks at investing in companies that are changing our future as we speak. Um, what it takes for founders to make things to change the world, how sustainability is really the gift that keeps on giving from both a revenue generating perspective and from a making our world a better place perspective. Might talk a little bit about Elon and a bunch of other stuff. We'll see where it takes us. So let's get into it. Can you share a little bit about your background as an investor and previous to that? Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. My background, I am currently a partner at a venture capital fund called G2VP. That fund was founded about two years ago by myself and three other colleagues who had been investors at Kleiner Perkins. Kleiner Perkins is a venture capital firm located here in the Silicon Valley of California and has been around since 1972. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about, about that firm over the course of the, of the discussion. I had been at Kleiner Perkins for about 10 years, making investments in companies that were doing work to drive sustainability, technology companies that were doing work towards sustainability and worked with a handful of, of great businesses in that time. Companies like OSIsoft, which has built a time series database for IoT data, internet of things data, that's, that's working with large equipment in power plants on wind farms in the transportation context, 22,000 installations, billions of streaming data points, that, that kind of work for finding data and connectivity in cities and in other environments. O-Power, which drove consumer energy efficiency programs for folks, basically trying to communicate with consumers about how much energy they were they were using in a given month to yeah. help them reduce their consumption a few percent every month and, and drive real change that way. Upwind Solutions, which, which was the largest service provider for the US wind turbine fleet, and ServiceMax and other field services related business to help drive efficiency that way. So I've been investing at the intersection of technology, industry, and sustainability for about 10 years. Love that work. Get really fired up with the companies that we get to work with who are trying to both build great businesses, which is hard enough, and also drive sustainability at the same time. And it's, uh, it's a real privilege to get to do that kind of work. And so you worked at Kleiner Perkins, which for those of you who don't know, is, is one of the, the famous, like most famous Silicon Valley VC firms. And, yeah, and uh, also kind of in the news of late when Joe Laca bought the Warriors. So, yes. so did you work with Joe? I, d I did. I had a great chance to work with Joe before he bought the Warriors. So um, it's been terrific. It's great to see him. Great to see the success he's had with the Warriors. And I'm a big fan. Yeah. So anyway, so Kleiner Perkins is, is super famous. And one of your one of your pals there, uh, one of your colleagues there was Ryan Popple, who we've had on the show before, who we interviewed for our Future of Cities podcast. And yes. if for those of our listeners who haven't checked that out, just head to futureofcities.com and, and you can check it out. But we interviewed Ryan, who's now the CEO of Proterra. So Proterra was an electric 
bus company that was, you know, to be reductive is basically doing a similar sort of thing that Tesla did for cars. They're doing for electric buses, but it goes much beyond that. And, and you can check out the interview with him on uh, on Future Cities. But he was a colleague of yours at, at Kleiner Perkins and eventually went on to be the CEO of Proterra. And that's kind of how, how, how David and I met and he had checked out Future Cities. One of the things that, you know, why we wanted to have you on the show is this idea that founders and, and CEOs who are building companies right now that have these really hard exponential challenges that have sustainability challenges, like what it takes to be an investor and what it takes to be a founder of these companies. So like when we talked to Ryan, I met Ryan, I think like five years ago or something like that, four years ago. And I went to Proterra headquarters and he kind of showed me around and he was like, you know, this is where Tesla was in blank year. And so when I went back and interviewed him, it was, you know, uh, a number of years later and it's like totally different. The buses were totally different. Like everything was completely different. And it was really cool to see that. And so what, what I'd love to learn from you is like, what does it take for you know, a founding team or these like entrepreneurs, these kind of like, uh, I'll call them like a little bit crazy entrepreneurs <laughs> like Elon Musk that are really trying to create technologies that build sustainably. Because I think that as we look to, you know, the future, the, the companies that are building sustainably, that are building products that help us, you know, track things like, you know, wind turbines and all of that, they're the best things for our, our world, but also they're, they're great businesses. Yep. Great question. The, the, one of the first things that, that comes to mind is a classic distinction among founders around being a, a missionary founder versus being a mercenary founder. Yeah. And that distinction is often used to say, is, is this a founder who cares about, who is just desperate to solve a real problem and they're going to stop at nothing to get it solved? That's the missionary founder versus a mercenary founder who's, who's thinking, gosh, this might be the way that I can make 15 million bucks or a hundred million bucks. And and then go off and do what I really want to do. And, and historically, the missionary founders are the ones who can not only succeed themselves, but can also pull together a great team around them, inspire the team to build something special, and also inspire a customer base to begin to work with them and, and really solve a problem. So I would say for, for folks who are focused on sustainability ventures, for folks who are focused on building companies with sustainability as part of that mandate, the missionary founders are the ones that really make it work. The venture capital landscape or the startup landscape for sustainability companies has gone through some, some peaks and valleys over the course of the last 10 years or so. I've been in, in doing this kind of investing for about 10 years. And when I started in 2008, sustainability was very much in vogue. And you had a combination of founders who were, who were doing that kind of work because they really did want to see global emissions reduced. They really did believe that this was the defining challenge of their generation and they were going to dedicate their lives and their working lives to go solve it. Those are the missionary founders. And there were a handful at that time of, of more mercenary founders who thought, well, it looks like there's something to be done in solar. It looks like this may be the next big thing. So let's go out and try to try to flip a company to do it. Totally. And and those are the ones, there's those are the ones that have failed. I think that building a business that is trying to tackle all of the challenges of company building, venture-backed company building in the first place around getting that first product together, finding those first customers, competing with with incumbents and all that, that's hard enough. But then you add in the the mission, you need to have real fire about what you're doing uh, for it to work. I, so I, you know, 
Thanks for the plug there for the yeah. mission. Uh, no, um, but it, it's it's something that. So I first read that article, the missionaries not mercenaries article, a couple of years ago on HBR, and I was just looking it up. So if, for the listeners who haven't checked it out, if you just search, you know, the best entrepreneurs are missionaries, not mercenaries, and we'll we'll link it up in the show notes. It's a Harvard Business Review article. But th- so this came from a Kleiner Perkins partner, right? Who like who created this, right? Yes, John Doerr. So this is that is one of the adages that John Doerr has used. John Doerr is a is a legendary venture capital investor, one of the among the first investors in companies like Amazon, in Google, in Netscape, Sun Microsystems, and and many others. And not just a, a luminary venture capital investor, but also a, a terrific human being and leader. So he was the one who kind of helped to make that distinction. And it was it was a distillation of lessons that he had learned in his venture capital career over the decades previous that the companies that that are backed by those missionary founders are they find a way to make it work. They don't yeah. take no for an answer. And and that is that is a characteristic of of folks that are successful. But that's and you know, and I think that that's it's just so hard to bring a company, you know, out of the ether, you know, from zero to one to you know to borrow a phrase, to bring something new into the world and to have a long term you know plan of like the ten year plan. Like when I sat in Ryan's you know office and he's like you know this is going to be a warehouse, like this is going to be where you know buses are going to be built and it's just a blank room. Like you're bringing something new and that's really really hard and and i think that that kind of idea that someone is mission driven obviously something we talk about all the time here yep. uh, at the mission but it's also something that is crucial to success and like why why do you what have you seen from your portfolio where people take it more seriously or they take the change that they're making more seriously than someone who's not sure ryan is a good example of of a founder who has, or, or he, he actually was not a founder. Yeah, he's a, he's true, a CEO, yeah. but has founder level passion for that business. So he wakes up thinking about transportation. He wakes up thinking about urban mobility. And therefore, when the, when a challenge comes along with, with a city or a municipal regulation that, that's going to make his life difficult, he has a very clear picture of what the future is going to look like yes. 10 years from now. And whether the next step he takes is a you know, he needs to go a little bit further right than he thought or a little bit further left than he thought. He knows where where that business will be 10 years from now and he sees that pretty clearly and he's motivated by he's motivated by that. So he is he's able to be successful. In my experience, another dimension of what makes these missionary founders successful is oftentimes that clarity of vision comes from experience in an industry. It comes from a real challenge that they have lived or have seen that that they are getting to work to solve. And this I think is uh, is extensible into into venture capital generally, but you find that founders who have lived and experienced the problem that they're trying to solve can connect with customers, can connect with their with their prospects, can connect with with the people that they're working with. So you get an entrepreneur at a at a company like Turvo. Turvo is a is a portfolio company of ours that is working on making the global shipping industry much more efficient. One of the co-founders of that business had been a shipping broker. Who realized just how frustrating it was that every time you wanted to get a shipment of product, you know, your product from Long Beach to New York, you were gonna have to make 15 phone calls, or that was gonna touch eight different trucks when it really didn't have to. And there was a way to make that business much more efficient, both for a quality of work and quality of life perspective for brokers, but also for the efficiency of, of the global supply chain. So he is able to very seriously, very credibly talk to 
other other folks that work at the company, the, the folks that are building the product, and the folks within the industry who are going to become his customers about exactly the problem that's getting solved and exactly why the, the current state doesn't make any sense, but why, you know, the, the future state will. And I, and you know, and I would I would push back a little bit on the idea that you have to have experience and I would say and I would say like intimate knowledge. So it's like whether or not you actually worked in that industry or whether it was just you studied the industry at length and talked to all of the people that have those problems. Like a good example is Austin Allred of Lambda School, mm-hmm. who's been in the news a bunch lately. I don't think he ever went through anything like what he what the company that he created in Lambda School, but what he saw was that there's this massive delta of software engineers in the world, like massive and growing even more massive every day. It's like I need to pull every single barrier away from these people, like mm-hmm. every single one. And the most important one is cost. So if I can pull every barrier away and we can just put highly talented people into becoming software engineers, we can create you know, millions more software engineers, right? Which is what the world needs. But he did all of the requisite research and development and talking to people and figuring out those problems in order to to create that thing. And I think, you know, and that's, it's a different type of problem than some of the ones where it's like, you know, building an electric bus or something like that, which has a, a bunch more technical pieces. But I think there's a little bit of shyness when you're not a missionary founder that you don't want to really do all the work to understand the ins and outs of the industry. And a lot of times, if you're an industry outsider, you're trying to change an industry right. where it's like all of your friends and all of your, or you you know, you don't have any necessarily like friends or any people that you're quote unquote disrupting that the word gets tossed around a lot, but probably not correctly a lot of the time. But it's the idea that you you can see the writing on the wall before anybody else. Absolutely. And I think that that disruptor word, it does get used a lot, but it's happening. I mean, and, and, a, and a real part of the thesis of our firm and our fund is that you've got some of the largest industries in the world, shipping, transportation, manufacturing, logistics, energy, agriculture, power, that make up more than half of the economy, but haven't yet been as disrupted as they will be, but are still fairly analog industries. So we are talking to founders all the time who are thinking about shaking up some of these big, big industries. And that is what's happening. But, and there are some companies who want to shake them up without any knowledge of what's going on there. And those are higher volatility bets. But even, even so, I think you've got to, if you've got a technical team that doesn't know particularly much about agriculture, for example, but they want to go disrupt agriculture with computer vision, there's lots of potential there, but but you're going to need to spend a ton of time in the ag industry, for example, to to be able to make sense of that and figure out exactly where to where to point your your efforts. Yeah, and and ultimately you need to hire a ton of talent that fits that. And you know, we we talked before we got on air about this idea of kind of talent and capital and you know, there's a lot of companies that take venture capital money that maybe shouldn't and then there's a lot of that that don't that should around sustainability and around the companies that you're investing in why does this require large amounts of capital injection into these businesses and why and you know some of that is around talent talent some is around just large amounts of overhead or 
storage space or technology investments, but like, what have you seen from sustainability and maybe just speaking about sustainability in general, Mm -hmm. um, about companies that are in this kind of like, quote unquote, vertical, which shouldn't be a vertical, right? It's like, it should be, (laughs) it should be the, uh, you know, the base in which all the pillars are are built on. It should be the foundation of the city and then all the, you know, rest is built on. But what are those reasons why why a company, why a founder or founding team would need to pursue venture in this kind of way? Sure. I like I like the way you frame it as sustainability as a foundation that that these companies are built upon that that cuts across a bunch of large industries and that's that's the way that we see it as well. But I think that the reason that sustainability oriented companies are thinking about venture capital is just the size of the underlying industries they are trying to shake up or the size of these industries that they're trying to make more efficient. So 60% of the economy and 80% of emissions are coming from transportation, the built environment, and the the power industry or the power and and energy industries. And those industries are multi-billion, in some case, trillion dollar industries that have an existing ecosystem and and a lot of assets in the ground that are doing their work. So if you want to break into those industries and create real big businesses, you need to you need to be able to punch above your weight. Uh, you need to be able to project an image that that is bigger or get to a certain size where you're taken seriously by by some of the the customers and competitors that you're working with. There's an adage that that I've heard and I like that only desperate people buy from startups. And uh, <laughs> and like it's that. true. The the words there are chosen carefully. That's I, I picked it up somewhere and I don't know where to attribute it to, but I'll try to figure that out. But it's interesting. Only desperate people buy from startups. It's not companies that buy from startups. It's people. You got to find a person who has a real, real problem that can't be solved by going and buying from ABB or Siemens or GE or IBM or Google or Amazon and that can only be solved by a startup. And to be the startup that can beat those big incumbents early, it's it's better to have capital and it's better to have recruiting help and it's better to have business development partnership help and those kinds of things because of the scale of the problems that are trying to be solved around making the built environment more efficient, making global shipping more efficient, making the insurance industry more efficient, making the contract manufacturing or power business more efficient does take some scale because it's not sustainability is not typically around the creation of a new industry. It's around making existing industries better, longer lasting, more more efficient, more sustainable, or kind of redefining them in a less resource intensive way. This was part one of our interview with David Mao. To make sure you don't miss the second part or any of the other great Mission Daily content, hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.